trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. This is where we gather on a daily basis to revel in wrong think, challenge the narrative, see the world as it really is, and more importantly, choose what we can do within our own respective spheres of influence to change what needs to be changed. I know it seems like an overwhelming task sometimes, but believe me, you and I are up to it. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like HSLAmmo.com, Monticello College, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah, GovernYourIncome.com, SolarPatriots.com. Getting quite a list, huh? You can check them out on my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com, and uh, let's dive right in. I want to talk a little bit about uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency, which I am not an expert on either one of these. Fortunately, I'm blessed with friends who are far smarter than I am, and uh, so I have people I can turn to and and, uh, solicit opinions as I'm doing my own research and doing my own homework to to get informed points of view. And so I talked to a number of different people about about, uh, cryptocurrency. And, you know, the funny thing is, just a few years ago, three, four years ago, there were some people who were very much like, oh, yeah, man, you should, you should at least have part of what you're saving for the future or what you're trying to hold on to in crypto. And I, you know, actually took a chance. I said, well, okay, I'm going to put in, I'm going to take 250 bucks and put that in there just because I'm okay with walking away from it if it doesn't work out. Well, guess what? It didn't work out. And so, poof, 250 bucks gone. Not exactly, you know, a great stock market crash, but I was a little bit disappointed. Nonetheless, since that time, other cryptocurrencies have come out of the market. I mean, you know, to buy Bitcoin back in the day when you could pick them up for a buck, you know, everybody wishes they had known what uh, what they know now. What are they worth now? $60,000 each or somewhere in, in that vicinity? You know, the the beauty is, Bitcoin is not uh, valued or the, the value of Bitcoin is not really found so much in the, the representative Bitcoin itself. It's, it's a lot like the fiat currency that we use today, which essentially are either e- electrons in the computer, notations on a ledger, or sometimes, you know, tangible pieces of paper representing value. But the intrinsic value is all in our heads. Yeah, this $20 bill is worth something because I believe it's worth something, something, as does the person who takes it. But the value of cryptocurrency is actually found in the delivery system. That would be the, the blockchain technology. And, and the beauty of it is, is simply this. It's a decentralizing technology, meaning you can exchange the funds or the, the value with a person anywhere in the world Instantly, there's a perfect record kept of it, but you don't need a middleman. In other words, you don't need central bankers to handle that money for you and, of course, you know, lend out uh, in fractional reserves fashion, uh, you know, uh, uh, 10 times the amount of money they actually have on deposit, you know, in order to reap the profits. We won't go too deep down the rabbit rabbit hole here, but I'm just going to suggest that any system 
in which you can reap a portion of dollars that you create out of thin air as as interest, you know, as as profit for yourself. That's a pretty cool system. But it requires that you have a government backing you up and saying, yeah, 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 you're the only one allowed to do this using legal tender laws and so forth. But what about the privacy? What about the the ability <clears throat> to, again, make those exchanges securely with other people? See, this is why I think crypto is a good thing in the sense that I think uh, I think that people who have a portion of their savings or a portion of their portfolio in crypto, I don't think they're stupid at all. In fact, uh, more and more, they're looking like they're very smart. So whoever says diversify, you know, where you're holding your money, I think that's good advice. And in this day and age, crypto would be a part of it. Now, of course, this has not escaped those who uh, run the central banks and those who wish to be in charge of people's money, the money changers, if you will, because they stand to lose something. They stand to lose control. They stand to lose profits. So you better believe they are looking for ways. How can we get a hold or get a handle on crypto? Got a great article here from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is from William J. Luther and Nicholas. Nicholas, I'm going to screw up your name. I'm sorry. Kashinowski. Cryptocurrencies and the National Bank Act. Learning the wrong lessons from history. Now, they point out in their article that policymakers have been quick to compare cryptocurrencies to historical wildcat banks. In fact, SEC Chair Gary Gensler argues that stable coins are similar to wildcat banks, which he says resulted from the lack of federal bank regulation prior to the National Bank Act. Stable coins are cryptocurrencies with a fixed exchange rate against a major currency like the U.S. dollar. Now, to do this, stable coin issuers must hold enough liquid reserves to convert the stable coins at the promised conversion rate. And Gensler questions the long-term viability for cryptocurrencies. This is according to the Wall Street Journal, underscoring the importance of protecting investors in the market and bringing it under regulatory oversight. Ah, yes. We're only doing this to protect you, not at all to serve our own interests. By the way, Senator Elizabeth Warren has expressed a similar view. She says in the 19th century, wildcat notes were issued by banks without any underlying assets. And eventually, the banks that issued these notes failed, and public confidence in the banking system was undermined. The federal government stepped in, taxed these notes out of existence, and developed a national currency instead. And that's why we've had the stability of a national currency. She says, so in theory, a digital currency issued and backed by a central bank could provide the advantages of cryptocurrency without those risks. The Federal Reserve, a trusted institution, could provide a digital version of cash to the public that's secure, stable, and accepted everywhere. End quote. But there's something she left off there. And directly under its control, which keeps the people using it directly under their control. Just pointing this out here, a small omission on Elizabeth Warren's part. Now, the authors of this article on the American Institute for Economic uh, Research website say the unregulated private sector failed to produce reliable claims in the past, according to Elizabeth Warren. So she says the government should step in to remedy the perceived shortcomings of privately issued cryptocurrencies, just as it did with its historical antecedents. But there's a problem with that narrative, and that is it's inconsistent with the historical record. The U.S. experience doesn't show the dangers posed by an unregulated banking system. To the contrary, it clearly demonstrates the perils of poor regulation. 
policymakers are learning the wrong lessons from history. For starters, wildcat banking was incredibly rare. Gensler and Warren perpetuate the myth that the banking system was flooded with wildcat banks, issuing banknotes convertible into gold or silver, but not having sufficient reserves to honor those promises and absconding with their ill-gotten gains before the note holders wised up. And that this practice wasn't brought to an end until federal regulators stepped in. In fact, wildcat banking was limited to just a few states and lasted just a few years. Jerry Dwyer writes in an examination of that period of time, the events in Michigan are spectacular. But besides not lasting very long themselves, they also did not persist in the sense that they did not reappear in other states. In 1838, while Michigan was suffering through its debacle, New York passed the free banking law that its legislature had been debating for several years. New York's free banking system is widely regarded as notably successful. And Dwyer presents the losses to those New York free bank holder, note holders from 1842 to 1863. You might want to pull up a chair. This is pretty heavy stuff. He says the annual losses on New York notes were relatively high in the 1840s. 4% in 1842, 0.2% in 1844, and 0.4% in 1848. And then never again as high as 0.1%. Note holders' loss rates of less than 0.1% in later years are not obviously more than their losses from inadvertently destroying or misplacing notes. Now perhaps 4% seems extraordinary but it's not much higher than standard merchant terminal fees incurred to make payments today. Interesting. And Dwyer also uh, presents the losses to those holding notes from the New York free banks that failed, saying, for a few years, note holders' loss rates on these banks are relatively high. Nonetheless, loss rates on failed bank notes show the same pattern of declining losses over time, as do note holders' loss rates on all notes. The highest loss rate was 42% in 1842 with the range of estimated loss rates for Michigan a few years within the estimated loss rates of Michigan for a few years earlier. In the 1840s, the loss rate was 9.8%. In the 1850s, 3.7%. And in the four years of the 1860s, it is point, I'm sorry, 0.1%. So although the loss rate borne by those who held failed banknotes is sometimes substantial, even that loss rate decreases over time. So even when a bank fails, typically the note holders suffered little. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. I don't know if it'll push you over the edge, but it's definitely some stuff worth considering about crypto. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. Still a great time to get yourself squared away with your food storage. Yeah, there are some some breakdowns in the supply chain, and it could take you up to a month to get those orders in. That's the warning that I was given by Kendall, who's the owner of lifesavingfood.com. Don't let that stop you. Don't let that discourage you from, <clears throat> from getting yourself squared away while there is opportunity to do so. I'm not saying, you know, it's all going to come tumbling down. I'm just saying things are getting more difficult in many areas. Don't leave this one to chance. Go to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Click on the sponsor links. They'll take you right to the sponsors, and you'll have some options. Good options right there at your fingertips. 
So I'm sharing this article from William J. Luther and Nicholas Kachanowski on what we can learn from cryptocurrencies and the National Bank Act. Apparently, there are some folks who are pretty nervous at high levels of government and banking about cryptocurrency and its decentralizing effect, which essentially makes uh, central banks non-essential. Oh, how the tables have turned. So we have a lot of suggestions for, well, we need to bring them into regulatory control. And essentially, the, the central banks now are looking to create digital currencies of their own. And we'll have to talk about uh, the danger of electronic fascism, or in other words, putting everything in one basket. Your social score, your money, your ability to transact, all digitally trackable by government. I mean, we're, we're just inching closer and closer to that place where if you are thought to be disobedient, with the click of a mouse, you can become an unperson. Good luck with gassing up your car, but uh, it says here you're not uh, jabbed, so, you know, sorry. Rules are rules. The law is the law. And so it goes. Now, the article points out that prior to the National Bank Act, banks were chartered at the state level. In other words, they weren't permitted to open bank, to open branches across state lines. Many states went further still by preventing branch banking within the state. And as a result, the U.S. banking system was characterized by a large number of small, under-diversified unit banks. These local banks were overexposed to their local, small economies. So local shocks like bad weather, which reduced agricultural yields, took a terrible toll on their balance sheets. And in many cases, these unit banks failed. State banks were also prohibited, or prevented rather, from backing their banknotes with the assets of their choice. Instead, they were often required to hold low-quality state treasury bonds, which provided an attractive source of credit to states, but also endangered the solvency of the issuing banks. And even in cases where they were permitted to hold federal bonds, the dwindling supply of such bonds following the Civil War constrained note issues and made it incredibly difficult to meet seasonal demand for notes. In fact, George Selgin contrasts the U.S. banking system with that of Canada at the same time, which lacked the burdensome restrictions described above. Selgin says Canadian banks, unlike their U.S. counterparts, were free to issue notes on the same general assets that supported their deposit liabilities. They were, as a result, perfectly capable of accommodating both secular and seasonal changes in the demand for currency. In other words, the problem wasn't a lack of regulations. It was the existence of terrible regulations. And finally, the claim that the federal government clearly improved matters with the introduction of the National Bank Act appears to be out of sync with the historical record as well. The National Bank Act did not permit banks to branch across state lines. Rather, it enforced unit banking on the entire country. Nor did it permit banks to, to back their claims with whatever assets they desired. <clears throat> Perhaps that's why relatively few banks swapped their state charters for national charters when they were initially given that opportunity and didn't do so till a sizable tax was levied on state banknotes. So the bottom line here is the National Bank Act could have offered a better alternative, but it didn't. Instead, it strong-armed banks into going along with an even worse alternative. And William Luther and uh, Nicholas uh, Kachanowski say, hey, look, it's possible the cryptocurrency market would benefit from regulatory oversight, but the regulators are certainly wrong 
to base their case on the historical experience of the U.S. In fact, the lesson they should learn from history is that regulation can be detrimental. So, no, you didn't get a great education on how does crypto work, but now you have at least a better understanding of why maybe this isn't a place where we want to turn government loose to regulate to its little heart's content. Shifting gears. I know I beat the drum pretty hard this week about separation of school and state, but, man, there have been some well-written essays on the matter. want to add one more to them. This is from Kent McManigle. Pick this one up off everythingvoluntary.com. Education must be separate from state. And Kent McManigle says, look, I'm a fan of education. If there were such a thing as public education, I'd be a supporter. Unfortunately, what exists is public schooling. By public, they mean government controlled. By schooling, they mean indoctrination. Schooling is not the same as education, but it's opposite. Now, Kent McManigle says, I oppose socialist tax-funded government indoctrination and the compulsory day prisons for the children where it occurs. It's no wonder socialist and Marxist ideas sneak into the curriculum. Now, he says, I understand some parents need daycare for their kids, but that's a separate issue, or at least it should be. It also shouldn't be compulsory or tax-funded. He says, any education that occurs in these institutions is accidental. Kids are learning machines, and it's nearly impossible to keep them from learning. After a century and a half, though, government schools are getting dangerously close to eradicating the childhood hunger to learn. Oh, ouch. And it's not most teachers' faults, he points out. He says, my family's full of current and former school teachers and one former principal, but they're crippled by a system that shouldn't exist. Another problem arises when government decides what it will indoctrinate the kids to believe this year and which may change again next year. He points out that government usually sets itself up as the hero of the story, if not the hero of the past, then of the present, by acknowledging the wrongs that its predecessors committed, while pretending it isn't even worse today. The issue raised its head recently when residents of Portales became aware of the New Mexico Public Education Department's newly proposed social studies standards. The mask slipped, but Kent McManigle says the ugliness has always been there. Social studies is always the worst offender. The current issue is concerning the Marxist conspiracy theory called critical race theory and its twin lies of identity and equity. It's the latest example of the toxic indoctrination government schools have always spoon-fed their inmates. Now, Kent McManigle says, look, I understand some may think these concepts will make the world nicer, but one look at actual history and you'll know it doesn't work that way. Government always hides and changes the history presented in schools to suit its interests and to sell a particular version of the present. Critical race theory is simply the latest lie used to give government illegitimate power over your life. I don't think he could have stated that any better. Education needs to be free from government control, federal, state, and local, forever. The solution has always been a complete separation of education and state. Education is much too important to let the government handle. Yeah, that's swimming upstream pretty hard, but I don't think he's wrong. And I appreciate the fact that he, uh, you know, makes the distinction between there are good people within the system. There are good administrators, there are good teachers, but it doesn't change the fact that you're dealing with a system that is run by the uh, coercive institution of society, the state. 
and it's backed by compulsory attendance laws. So people who want to pretend that school is just benign and, you know, it's just, it's, it's what, it's the right thing to do for kids. Yeah, if you force them. It's the right thing to do to force the kids to go, to force the public to pay for it, to force them to learn this, to force them to learn that. I know I'm, I'm sounding terribly ungrateful. But maybe I'm looking at the bigger picture here and saying, did we get a little bit more than we bargained for? I know of a few people who would say definitely. Yeah, we got way more than we bargained for, not in a good way. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You stuck with me so far? Stick with me a little bit farther. I got some more fun stuff to share here. Also want to give a shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, these are the folks you should trust, not just if you're in the St. George, Utah area, but anywhere in the state of Utah. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has decades of experience in the lending industry. She clearly understands what the lenders need, what the borrowers need, and most importantly, can make things happen in in a quick fashion when time counts, which it does in a highly competitive real estate market like the one we're in right now. Call Heather at 435-703-4522. Her NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Located at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. So, let's uh, let's talk for a moment about employer vaccine mandates. Now that the current administration's moving ahead with the vaccine mandates for the workforce, I think the president graciously said, we'll give people till after the holidays, but <clears throat> you're still talking. Tens of millions of workers who are facing potentially losing their jobs if they don't get the vaccine. And this includes a lot of people who are not necessarily working directly for the federal government, but instead have secured a contract to work for the federal government. A lot of independent contractors out there. I mean, I know businesses that rejoiced. Oh, hey, you know, you got uh, you got federal contract work. You know, that's like a ride on the gravy train. But now they're starting to see the downside. And there's a great article from Ryan McMacken from the Mises dot uh, uh, org. Sorry. The Von Mises Institute is what I was trying to say. He reminds us when the feds pay the piper, they get to call the tune. A little something people are learning at some cost today. McMacken says advocates for vaccine mandates led by the Biden administration are apparently unconcerned that the mandates are likely to drive down total employment and reduce access to government services. He says in many cases, these are the same services that mandate pushing politicians have always insisted are utterly critical and must be expanded. But instead, the party's taking the position that the drive for vaccination must be placed before all other values in society, including public safety and employment for working-class Americans. So the whole affair helps to illustrate, yet again, the problem of allowing the state to have a monopoly on services like fire protection. These are services that can be and have been canceled or reduced for political purposes. Right? It's about making the people feel the pain. 
See, well, you can't have nice things unless you do what we say. Mandates show the danger of governments that maintain lucrative contracts and financial ties with countless ostensibly private firms and local government employers. This has made it. Uh, this has made many private sector firms reliant on those federal dollars. All combined, these factors have made it easier for governments to demand compliance with vaccine mandates. Even if the regulatory power of the federal government can be curtailed when it comes to vaccine mandates, the enormous federal financial footprint in the private sector will continue to provide a means for federal regulators to get what they want by threatening to cut off the gravy train. Now, the financial bribery made possible by government contracts is convenient indeed. In fact, Ryan McMacken says it appears that governments will be needing all the tools they can muster and proponents of coerced vaccines have increasingly looked for both carrots and sticks to help drive greater mandate compliance among workers. The administration has threatened sanctions for all employers with more than 100 employees if mandates are not imposed and has also threatened to cut off federal money from contractors. Yet many workers continue to resist even in spite of ongoing threats to throw working people out on the street for refusing the jab. So he says it's difficult to guess the full extent to which workers are refusing to prove vaccination status in exchange for being allowed to work. But the effect clearly isn't negligible. As Reuters reported this week in Wichita, Kansas, nearly half of the roughly 10,000 employees at aircraft companies Textron Inc. and Spirit Aerosystems remain unvaccinated against COVID-19, risking their jobs in defiance of a federal mandate, according to a union official. The head of the local machinist union district said, we're going to lose a lot of employees over this. Meanwhile, at Boeing, more than 7,000 workers have applied for religious exemptions and around 1,000 are seeking medical exemptions. Now, while that only represents 6% of the total Boeing workforce, this makes, this makes a non-trivial difference at the margins, especially when we're talking about skilled labor. Other anecdotes are numerous. NPR reports Washington State is reporting that so far nearly 1,900 state workers, including the head football coach at Washington State University, have quit or been fired for refusing the vaccine. In Washington, 400 workers at the Henry Ford Health System in Detroit walked away from their jobs. North Carolina-based Novant Health fired about 175 employees. And the list goes on. Countless local governments have imposed their own mandates for employees as well. The government of New York City is a notable example. Local mandates there mean roughly 9,000 municipal workers were put on unpaid leave Monday for failing to meet the deadline and to comply with the COVID-19 mandate. Moreover, fire department employees appear to be calling in sick to avoid the mandate, with roughly 2,300 members of the New York City Fire Department claiming they were sick. They didn't show up for work on Monday. Now, the Fire Department of New York claims about 11, employs about 11,000 uniformed workers. The New York Post even reports that uh, the uh, Fire Department uh, shuttered 26 fire companies citywide on Saturday because of staff shortages caused by the COVID-19 vaccination mandate. Gosh, push is coming to shove here. It's like, it's like we're imploding on ourselves. This is really intense. Ryan McMacken describes next how government power is enhanced by federal contracting. He says the administration has attempted to force compliance on these workers by directly using regulatory sanctions on firms that employ unvaccinated workers. 
Now, it remains unclear how practical this is. Fortunately for the administration, however, it's far easier to financially punish firms that depend on revenue through contracts with the federal government. All they have to do is cancel their contracts with non-compliant firms. And the firms, depending on these federal dollars, uh, are plentiful. They include more than just weapons contractors like Raytheon or General Dynamics. They include companies like Honeywell and Microsoft and Pfizer, just to name a few. Many of these contracts total hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes much, much more. So the practice of federal contracting turns a lot of great American employers into de facto adjuncts of the state. And he says now we're seeing the predictable results in terms of using these firms to indirectly enact federal policy. So it, it means you're going to see cutbacks on emergency services in order to force vaccine compliance. Do you remember the public park shutdowns from just a few years ago whenever there was a, a, an impasse over passing the federal budget? Well, a government shutdown's going to happen here. But in order to make sure that the right people felt the pain, they would shut down the parks. Well, you can't see Zion National Park. You can't, you can't even look at it. I think they'd have put up ply, plywood to block the view from the highway if they could have. Not until the government's funded can you gaze upon this natural beauty. That's the mindset that seems to hold sway here. So the taxpayers are still being forced in some cases to pay for services that they're not even receiving. But what other options do they have? And ironically, it's these services that the politicians insisted are so important that we, uh, we can't allow the private sector to handle them. But now they're deciding, well, maybe they aren't that important after all. And, of course, this has price effects and inflation and, and, uh, and production effects. Look, ultimately, Ryan McMacken says, by driving down employment, these policies will lead, that lead to mandate forced layoffs, will also drive down the production of good and ser- goods and services. That is going to fuel further price inflation in an economy where production already isn't keeping up with the growth in new money. Fewer services, higher prices, more families facing unemployment. My, aren't they building back better? Perhaps it's no wonder that one labor, le- labor union leader told Reuters, a lifelong Democrat union official, Cornell Beard, said he would no longer vote for the Democratic Party. He said, they'll never get another vote from me, and I'm telling the workers here the same thing. Ryan McMacken concludes, advocates of vaccine mandates are apparently doubling down on this, and their job has been made much easier thanks to federal contracts. This is serious stuff. I have friends, I have family that work in the healthcare industry that have have had to face this down. Some have chosen to go ahead and roll up their sleeve and get the shot rather than face unemployment. Others are seriously looking at losing their job by the first of the year. I know people want to portray it as, well, it's just selfish. Why don't they do the right thing and just, you know, be be a good person and get the shot? Well, there is this little matter of personal autonomy. And it's not something that everybody gets. It's not something that everybody understands. But for the people who do, there's very little that's more precious than knowing that uh, you have the absolute right to say no to a medical procedure you don't want to be a part of. And I'm glad they've chosen that hill to die on. I'm just sad they have to die. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you'd like to uh, get a copy of my show notes in your email inbox each time that I uh, publish them, it's a very simple matter of just to trip on over to thebrianheidshow.com and subscribe. It's not going to cost you anything. You know, if you're another radio personality, you can consider this your show notes. I won't even charge you for, for uh, putting your show notes together for you. But it's great information, and again, it's a great stepping-off point for people who really want to do their own research and you're not hanging on every word I'm saying. You're willing to dig a little bit deeper. I've I've found some great sources that I turn to on a daily basis and just passing those on to you. What you do with them, well, that's up to you. So there's propaganda and then there's propaganda that's aimed at children. I'm sorry, that's <laughs> that's the evil part. And it's the propaganda that's aimed at children that really strikes me as questionable. Now, if you haven't seen the new creepy Pfizer ad telling kids they're superheroes for getting the COVID vax, it's worth a watch. I'm just going to play the audio for you, but you should get the feel of this. It's about a minute and a half long, but this is just released from Pfizer, and this is uh, you know encouraging and, and also appreciating the vaccine clinical trial volunteers. Before I click play, though, I'm going to remind you, this is a virus with a 99.7% survival rate. Kids have almost no chance of being sickened, or at least horribly sickened by COVID. So why this push for vaccines? Well, before we answer that question, have a little propaganda. This is what they're saying. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. That does not sound good at all. Let's try that one more time. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna unplug, replug, and we'll see if we can get the kids to work this time. If this doesn't work, then we'll move on to something else. All of us want. Here we go. Getting ready to fight COVID. All of us want to be superheroes. And the most important heroes are those that help others. This year, thousands of kids like us around the world joined the COVID-19 vaccine trial. Kid power. And when they did, they became all superheroes. Ah! To all the kids who volunteered, we'd like to say... Thank you! Thank you. Thank you for sharing your superpowers of... Courage. Trying new things. The ability to save people power to help people helping not just um yourself but many other kids to not be scared be strong super brave bravery and courage a superhero shot helping everybody fight coronavirus and help others you're helping the whole entire world thank you you are all superheroes thank you thank Thank you superheroes Thank you. You're awesome. Oh, and the Pfizer logo comes up. And it's just, I mean, look, it's its sweet. This is some really well-done propaganda. But there's, there's a creepiness about this that is just undeniable. I mean, you've got a multi-billion dollar pharma giant with an incredibly tainted past 
who's also seen exponential profits during the pandemic as a result of taxpayers being forced to pay for the jab and also enjoyed billions in taxpayer dollars to advertise said jab. Matt Agarist says that the windfall of profits realized from vaccinating adults quickly turned the company's sites to children as the customer base waned. So despite children facing a near zero chance of dying from COVID-19, the FDA jumped on board and quickly approved Pfizer's mRNA vaccine for children ages 5 to 11. And after spending billions of taxpayer dollars in advertisements to convince adults to get the shot, Pfizer's launched this new ad this week, which seemingly targets their new customer base. That would be children. The company held back nothing. Referring to children who got the vaccine as part of the experiment as superheroes with superpowers. But sadly, all the kids in the video are not heroes. None of them are the age to consent to take a jab. And they were all offered up to the pharma giant as guinea pigs by their parents. And while this ad is specifically referring to the kids whose parents allowed them to be guinea pigs as superheroes, the underlying tone is meant to appeal to all children. That's why it says in there, if I take the vaccine, I will be a superhero. Now, Matt Agarist says naturally this ad is not very appealing to many who have a family member or a friend who have suffered an adverse reaction to the jab. As a result, the dislikes on the video have already surpassed the likes and they're climbing fast. Gotta love that ratio. Now, it's important to note out, or to point out, rather, that the overwhelming majority of folks who get vaccinated have little to no side effect. But to say that it carries no risk and to censor those who point out those risks is unethical at best and downright insidious at worst. Now, the Free Thought Project reported uh, this push to vaccinate children is in spite of the fact that kids face a near zero threat from the virus. What's more, as Americans are quickly learning, the virus loses efficacy over time, leading to a large number of breakthrough cases, which the Centers for Disease Control can no longer sweep under the rug. On top of breakthrough cases, there's been a record number of adverse reactions reported to the CDC, and many of them include children. One of those children who participated in the Pfizer trial and is a superhero, according to the ad above, is Maddie Daguerre. She received the Pfizer vaccine when she was 12. She is in a wheelchair now. And like Pfizer, Maddie's family made an advertisement to tell her story about her experience with the vaccine. However, Maddie's ad is and has been actively censored on YouTube. What's more, Comcast pulled the ad last week as it was slated to run before the FDA's Vaccines and Biological Products Advisory Committee met to discuss COVID-19 vaccines for children. Another one of these superheroes censored into oblivion is Ernesto Ramirez Jr., who was one of hundreds of children like Maddie who took the jab early on. Sadly, however, unlike Maddie, he did not survive, and five days after the shot, according to his father, he dropped dead. Now, Ernesto Ramirez told Fox 26 Houston journalist Ivory Hecker earlier this year, I keep hearing advertisements about how safe it was for teenagers, so I said, okay. Two or three weeks later, the CDC started announcing children were having enlarged hearts. Now, a typical heart for a boy this age, according to Dr. Peter McCullough, a Dallas physician featured in Hecker's video, uh, would be less than 250 grams. In his case, it was more than 500 grams. Ramirez tried to raise money for his deceased son's funeral, but because he claimed that the jab killed his son, GoFundMe deleted it. 
So apparently, according to big tech, only those who praise the vaccine's efficacy are allowed a platform. If you or your child were injured by it, you have no right to speak. And if you doubt uh, why that is, well, there's a there's a video linked that will show you that, uh, you know, mainstream media, federal government, and the science, trademarked, brought to you by Pfizer. Look, I'm not going to rail just against, you know, the drug companies. There are some things they've done that are very beneficial. But there's an unholy alliance right now between these big drug companies, particularly Pfizer, and governments. And I think it's being used to, to our detriment. And there's just, there's something that strikes me as just incredibly creepy and unreasonable about the intensity with which the vaccine is being pushed. I mean, look, truth be told, I, the, the thought of getting COVID scares me as much as it scares anybody else. And yes, I know people who have been relatively um, not, you know, on, on the radar screen, not morbidly obese, uh, not suffering heart disease or diabetes, who nonetheless have died from it. So it can be unpredictable. But I just have a real problem with the level of coercion and this insistence. It's, it's almost a maniacal insistence. Everybody, everybody has to get this. There can be no control group. There can be no one outside of it. And the fact that they're pushing it as hard as they are, those who are, are pushing the, the vaccine, I'm fairly certain they don't have my best interests in mind. I probably would have considered getting vaccinated. Because of my age and stage of life, I probably would have considered it had they not pushed me so hard. It's a decision you got to make on your own. Whatever your decision is, I'll respect it. But is it asking too much to insist that others respect my decision as well? I mean, come on, we can't pretend that, well, you know, the people who are vaccinated, they don't either catch or spread the coronavirus. No, it turns out they do. And what's more is uh, a lot of them are finding out now that they've converted their immune system into a subscription service that's going to require, you know, at least yearly, maybe twice a year, updates. Does that sound right to you? I don't know. Something about this seems off. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us today. We've got a lot to discuss. And some of this stuff, I tell you, you think, okay, I'm, I'm in a place where, where nothing is really going to lodge me or, or dislodge me from, you know, the things that I hold to be near and dear. And it doesn't matter how careful you are to avoid trouble. Trouble will come and find you. And nobody, nowhere have I seen this more clearly than the folks in, in, the, in Utah's Dixie working to, to hang on to that heritage and uh, but but folks have come along and want to fix it for him. And we've got uh, Brad Bennett joining us. Brad, uh, thank you for taking some time to to come back on the show. For those who don't know you, for those who aren't familiar with your organization, tell us about yourself and your organization. 
So I'm a native-born uh, resident of Southern Utah. I was born in St. George, and I'm also a prominent business owner. And uh, and I'm also um, an alumni of, of, of Dixie State University and also uh, went to Dixie High School and Dixie Middle School. So, you know, Dixie has been uh, part of this community the entire time I've been alive. And uh, it, it's a big deal to all of us. It's, it's uh, We hold a... Uh, dear to our hearts, the, the the term of Utah's Dixie. It means a lot of things, and um, it's really more than just a word. It's a it's a sense of community, and, and it has a, a lot of feelings attached to it. So, to take that away from us is, you know, is like changing someone's last name. You know, it's it's a, it's a big deal. Um, our group is called uh, Defending Southwestern Utah Heritage Coalition. So, dsuhc dot uh, org is our website, and uh, so we were formed uh, in response to the first attack, uh, called cancel culture attack on Dixie in our community, which was, um, they were, in fact, they were actually temporarily successful at doing this, but they were, they had, they had in John Pike, the, the, our ex mayor was a huge part of this. Um, who knew that he was so liberal at the time, but he came in and, and he wanted to remove Dixie from uh, the Dixie center. And they voted and did that. And then our group was formed to, uh, in response to that. And then we got a change back. So now it is still the Dixie Center. And, uh, and then, of course, now they're coming after, you know, Dixie uh, State University. Okay. So for, for those who may not be familiar with uh, the, the battle that, that has been waged here in Utah's Dixie for, for quite, a, quite a while, I mean, I moved there 25 years ago, and it was going on then, and it's only intensified yeah. since. What is the purpose? What is, what's the purported good that would be brought about by taking this name away? What is that supposed to fix? Well, I mean, obviously, it's not going to fix anything, because when you, just by taking Dixie out of the name, who, who, what problems are you solving for any person? You know, nothing. Uh, nothing's going to change as far as... Uh, that goes right. You haven't helped a single person by doing that. Um, and then they haven't been able to show any proof as to why it needs to happen. It's just, honestly, it's, it's, it's the left grandstanding trying to just get another uh, notch on their cancel culture agenda. No, I, I wouldn't disagree. I, I first became acquainted with this term political correctness, uh, probably about 20 some years ago. And, and, and I never really understood what political correctness, correctness was about until someone put it in the context of, look, if you take Marxism out of economics and just translate it to culture, it's about getting people to think only in a certain way. There's a dogma that they have to believe, and and we've seen that spread across the nation's college campuses. I think uh, Utah's Dixie's been fairly insulated, but that kind of thinking has come looking for a problem to solve. So it's a solution looking for a problem, and apparently they felt that th- this name was, was something that had to go away. Talk to me about... Um, I know there's been opposition. I've seen it and, and talked to a lot of people who, who did not want to see this name taken away. Talk to me about the people, though, who have enabled this, particularly those in the community who, you know, are, are doing so from positions of, you know, official authority. So, yeah, so the, really the problem here is that we finally had the right mix of 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 people who have, you know, uh, some left-leaning uh tendencies uh, to come together and, and actually uh, get a lot farther with this, uh, this time. And so basically we have, uh, we had a mayor, John Pike, who 
you know, uh, ended up being quite liberal uh, in many areas. And then we have now a, a fairly liberal um, board of trustees on the on, on, at Dixie State University, and then also in the board of higher education. And all of those people are appointed, not elected, and so they're not representing. Uh, the people in Southern Utah or even the people in, in Utah correctly, because the, all of the constituents uh, for our legislators in all of Utah and, and Southern Utah want this to stay. The majority do. So it's, it's roughly around um, 61 to 70% of all Utahns want it to stay and around 85% of all Southern Utahns want it to stay. So these people are not representing our interests. They're representing their own uh, interests. You know, I I learned a long time ago, Brad, that uh, you know you can follow the money, or even even more simple, just ask who benefits from this. And I'm trying to see. I mean, I'm trying to be open minded about who could possibly benefit. Granted, there may be some people who say, "Well, I'm offended by it." Okay, so there's one person, but generally, how is it going to benefit people to take this uh, to stigmatize and take away the name Dixie? Yeah, again, it's it's going to cause a huge. Uh division amongst the community and the school, which has been, uh, you know, a strong bond that we've had with that school for 110 years. And they are literally destroying that. Um, but they're doing it because there are liberal donors that will donate money to the school if Dixie's removed. Uh, at least that's my belief. Um, they won't come out and just admit the truth. You know, instead, they want to actually call our community racist and and infer racism upon Utah's Dixie, which is obviously uh, a bad idea because that's the farthest thing from the truth. No, I I agree, and and I think people who are people who are looking at the bigger picture, I mean, uh, Brad, they've got to recognize uh, racism is essentially the the cuss word of every person who's not getting their way, you know, in a, in a particular discussion or or debate. I, I mean, everything is racism, and it's it's to the point where the word has has really lost meaning, but. Again, innocent people who have never attended offense, attended offense, intended offense for anybody, or um, you know, tried to to minimize times when when people truly have been offended. I I don't understand why why they're being forced to to be treated like you know somehow defending this is wrong. Well, I mean, you know, th- these guys have an agenda. They want to accomplish it, and they're going to do anything and everything they can to do that. They know they don't have community support, so they have to really grasp at straws and, and, and run off to the Cicero group and try to manufacture statistics to, to back up their claims. Because at the end of the day, you know, all they have to do is they know they know they probably can't convince the public. That's why they tried to circumvent the community in the beginning, because it's kind of a lost cause. They, they know how we feel. So but if they can just convince just enough legislators to get it done, then that's all that matters. And so if they can manufacture some statistics that could, uh, you know, move the needle with these legislators to, to vote their way, then then uh, that's what they're going to do. And, and they're working hard at that, and they're uh, somewhat successful at that. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's fifty fifty right now as to what's going to happen. I I don't have a lot of confidence that uh, people in government are are going to do the right thing, and that's that's not just with the people you know sitting there at, at uh, Utah's Capitol Hill, but generally it seems like the further up the chain you go, government wise, the more people um, are, are compromised. They have to to bow to what's politically correct, 
Um, and, and sometimes it, it advantages them when they do. Do you have any advocates at the state level that, that are standing up and fighting to, to uh, preserve this heritage? Yeah, absolutely. So there are, I mean, we do have some, some people in the, in the House of Representatives and the, and the Senate that are actively lobbying to, you know, uh, save Dixie. So, yeah, we definitely have both sides uh, heavy at work trying to, you know, um, get this solved. But, uh, yeah, it's, 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 like I said, it's who knows what will happen. That's why it's so important that anybody listening that's in central Utah or northern Utah, that you, you, you write your uh, House of Representatives and most importantly write the senators and let them know that you want them to keep Dixie at Dixie State University. And you can get their email address on our website. It's just uh, dsuhc.org or protectdixie.com. There's a, a button there that's it'll, to email your legislators. It's a preloaded form, and you can send them a, an email and let them know you want to stay. In fact, if we don't get your help on that, uh, that's going to really uh, be a problem because we need everybody to, to do that to win this fight. What are you hearing back from these legislators? I mean, are you hearing Well, you know, things? we're some of it's positive, some of it's negative. You know, Dan McKay is uh, adamantly against, uh, you know, um, keeping Dixie. You know, so he's 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 not gonna he's not gonna vote to save it. But then you have Don Ibsen who emailed me back today and said he's looking hard to save it, and others. So um, you know, it's 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 like I said, it's kind of. 50-50 right now. Okay, hold that thought. Brad Bennett is my guest. We'll be back to continue our conversation with him just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just wanted to mention that you can visit my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I will have links to the uh, websites that my guest, uh, Brad Bennett, has uh, has been sharing with you um, pertaining to, to Utah's Dixie and the, the ongoing battle uh, to, to take away or to preserve this name. Um, I, I got to tell you, Brad, this frustrates me so badly only because I, I felt very much a part of that, even though I only lived in St. George for nine years. Um, there's a really unique and cool heritage there that has absolutely nothing to do with oppression or sadness or slavery or anything like that, but very much to do with a very unique group of people in, a, in an incredibly unique part of the state. Yeah, and that's that's really the problem. Is that is that by this attempt of what they're doing, it's defaming our entire town nationally, and our and it's defaming our community for and and it's it's you know completely uh, sends the wrong message, and and really everybody is up in arms about it because we know what it means and we we know how um, inviting we are to all everybody who comes here. In fact. Uh, you know, I've owned a business here for over 40, or well, my, the business I own has been here for over 40 years, and I've ran it for over 30. And I can tell you that, you know, I deal with a lot of people who move here from California and other states. And that's the number one comment that I hear from these people is that I, I just can't believe how nice and inviting everyone is here. To- totally different from what they're used to. And that is the Dixie spirit, you know? So, yeah, I mean, Utah's Dixie really is nothing more than um, just 
a nickname that was given to this area because of our ability to grow southern type crops. Well, talk to me about some of the the efforts that that we're seeing right now. I, uh, you had mentioned, you know, there there are some of the people in the legislature who seem determined they're just going to make this happen. They've tried to create the cover for it. What options are left? I mean, I hate to think that this this is in the hands of bureaucrats, but it sounds like at some level, it, it kind of is. Well, it, it for sure is. Um, yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it's the the board of trustees have already voted on it unanimously. Um, again, they're appointed, not elected, so it was expected. Um, same thing with the Board of Higher Education, and now it's gonna. They've got a special session happening on November 9th. That's why it's so important that everybody go to our website, dsuhc.org, click on that email legislator button, and and email your legislators. Let them know you want Dixie to stay at Dixie State University because we are running out of time. But yeah, there's a special session that's uh, coming up here on the 9th of November. And it very well is going to get uh, heard by both the House and the Senate, and a decision will likely be made. Wow! So, the, so it, it's here. Okay, so so we need to we need to get the word out for people to, yeah. to stand up. What's the what do you find is the most effective message that people can give as to why they're standing up for it? Well, I think the biggest thing is is that we can't afford to have any of our history, or heritage destroyed. And if it's and if and if and not only that, the other problem is if you have, we already know because of the polling, right, that the majority of you all Utahns want it to stay. So any any senator or House of Representative member who is voting uh, against this is voting against the will of their constituents, right? If they'll do that on this, they'll do it on anything, right? We we just don't need those kind of leaders in power. So we have to let them know and know in certain terms. We expect you to be our voice, and we expect you to stand strong against council culture. You know, because, you know, even if it's not affecting you personally up north, well, cancel culture is affecting the whole state and we give it place anywhere. Right. It's a problem for all of us. Yeah. And it's how talk to me about the opposition. Where are you seeing uh, the strongest corners of support for removal of this name? And I mean, I'm not saying name names, but um, obviously there, there are special interest groups that, that like to get behind this. You know what? That's so interesting. It's not like all these groups. It's literally the DSU administration. Wow. That's it. Wow. That's pretty much it. You don't have, uh, you don't have a ton of groups standing up and saying it has to be gone. This is actually happening from a handful of members in the Dixie State University leadership. It's, it's, it's the most divisive thing that any DSU administration has done to our community in 110 years. It's disgraceful. And what kind of recourse is there in terms, I mean, it sounds like these are appointed positions. So unless somebody in what, the legislature, you know, gets, uh, gets the message, I, I don't think those who are making these decisions really have, have a lot to worry about, right? Well, no, they don't. That's the problem. They can do whatever they want because they're not beholden to the people, right? They were appointed by the governor and they can do pretty much whatever they want. But that's the thing, you know, the, the, the elected officials in the House and in the, in the Utah Senate are supposed to be the check to those guys, right? So that's supposed to be the check and balance. They're supposed to say, okay, we represent the people. You are, are supposed to too, but you're appointed and you're not doing that. So we're, we're you know, that they should, they have the final say. And they should vote the right way. And that is, you know, why would you ever vote against the majority of your constituents? That doesn't make sense. That, that's, that's what we elected you to do. Yeah, it just, I, like I say, it, it feels so much like a solution in search of a problem. 
And you combine that with, with people sitting in official places. And, man, I'm, I'm sorry it's the fight that you're having to carry forward, but I'm grateful there's people like you doing it, Brad. Let's, let's list the websites once again that uh, people can go to to get better informed, to, to lend their support. Where would you send them? Yeah, go to protectdixie.com or dsuhc.org. They're both the same page. Um, and and we, again, as Utahns, we all have to stand up for each other when this stuff happens because, um, you know, it, it's it's an epidemic across the whole nation now. And it, it may not be able to, to save it everywhere, but we can certainly band together and save it in our state. So I, I got to ask you, where does it go from here? I mean, statues have been torn down. Streets are being renamed. Schools are being renamed. Where... Can it possibly go from here? Do we even dare ask? Well, you know what? I think, uh, you know, Victor Iverson, who is one of our county commissioners, the county commissioners here just passed a resolution, a strong resolution to keep Dixie at Dixie State. And he said it, I think, best. He says, when does it stop? When does this cancel culture thing stop? And he says, when we say it does. And so we have to all stand up with one voice and make it stop or it won't. No, I'm, I'm with you there. And this, I guess the hardest part is probably just convincing people, no, you really do have a dog in this fight. Yeah, and I think that that's the big thing, too, is that it's not like it's been in the past, sadly, is, you know, this is on our doorstep now. Avoiding politics and not getting involved is honestly not much of a choice anymore. You're forced to take a side and then act, you know, where that's just where we're at in, in this climate today. Yeah. And and if if you don't stand up today, I mean, you've got to think about what to, if this progresses. Just try to follow the natural progression of where this kind of thinking goes. I mean, our our kids and grandkids might as they might as well grow up, you know, with a with a you know gag on their mouths for for all that they'll be allowed to say or think. Yeah, I totally agree. And again, history shouldn't ever be uh, erased, whether it's good or bad history. It's history, and it needs to be uh, preserved exactly the way it happened. And, and not be altered for future generations. Okay, so again, just we've got about a minute left here. The deadlines that people need to understand and the reason why they need to act sooner than later are what's, tell me what's coming up in terms of the, the meetings on this for the So again, we thought this wasn't going to get voted on until, uh, until January, but DSU leadership has been working hard to try to get it moved up to a, uh, be voted on during a special session in November, and it looks like they have been successful in that. And so, yeah, this could, this, this, uh, you know, it, November 9th uh, is when that session starts. And, um, you know, they're going to decide soon thereafter, most likely, what's going to happen here. So uh, these emails to your legislators have to get in right away. Okay, so do not delay. And again, we'll have uh, links to the websites that uh, that Brad has mentioned here. Uh, you can say them one more time if you want to for somebody who is grabbing pencil. Yeah, dsuhc.org and uh, also protectdixie.com. Right on the homepage, there's an email your legislators a button. It's a preloaded email form. Please write them a passionate email that says, look, I'm against council culture. I want you to save Dixie at DSU. I don't want you to re- remove any of our history or any of our heritage in the state of Utah. Okay. Brad, thank you so much for taking some time to join us today. I wish you all the best. Hey, thanks so much. Appreciate you. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am happy to welcome a special guest to the program. Tammy Brinkerhoff is joining me. And Tammy and I have talked over the years, and we were just trying to figure out how many years it's been since the last time we talked. But uh, November is National Adoption Month. And I was adopted, and Tammy, you are uh, the parent of adoptive children. And um, first of all, before we talk about National Adoption Month, tell people about who you are. Tell us about what you do. Well, I'm adoptive, an adoptive mother. I've worked with adoptive families over the years <clears throat> for, you know, 20-plus years. And I've also worked with birth moms. We've had them stay in our home. We've had six of them. And so they're like our family now, and we've just always tried to keep our toe in the adoption ring, and it's blessed us so much. We'd love to see it bless others. It's it's been it's been a great experience for me, and and even since the last time you and I talked, I've I've actually connected with my biological parents, and um, I know that can be kind of a dangerous, or at least at least it's a little bit it could be risky. Sometimes that's a chapter of people's lives they don't want to revisit, but. It's been very positive for me and um, my, my admiration for both those who give children up for adoption as well as those who adopt has never been deeper. Mine's right there with yours. So what would you want people to know? I know we were talking some trends before we jumped on the air here, but, but uh, adoption has, has always been an alternative, but sometimes it's not one that is, is widely um, used. Tell me about some of the st- statistics that you recently saw that show kind of an alarming trend? Well, I was looking at the number of adoptions versus the number of abortions going on in our country annually, and abortions outpace adoptions by three times. So for we've had a roughly, we average roughly 140,000 adoptions within the country that we roughly average 350,000 abortions. And a lot of times when um, people find themselves with an unplanned pregnancy, the abortion people scream louder than the adoption people. And their tactics are totally different. And Planned Parenthood is out there saying that we provide women's health services and all these other services when they really do direct people to abortion. And there's really not anyone out there that directs people to adoption. Yeah, it's... Uh, why Why is it? I, I just have to ask your opinion on this, Tammy. Why would, would this uh, perception have shifted? I mean, once upon a time, uh, before abortion became, you know, entirely about uh, the health or the reproductive health of the mother... There was a time when when society really understood and acknowledged, um, yeah, you know, there's an innocent life that's at stake there. But but somehow that's been pushed off to the side. We're not supposed to consider the innocent life at stake and only supposed to consider is, you know, the woman's choice being honored here. It has been pushed off to the side. And I think one of the reasons is now people actually view pets higher than children and they place a higher value on them. They do all they can to deceive themselves that these babies aren't babies yet, and they're not children, and they're not people. And they're basically, um, I call it in the box, towards other people. Everything is 
we all have our own perspective and everything revolves around us really. And when someone's in a situation that is hard and they didn't plan on and it's life changing, fear takes over. And when you have people saying, well, you can just get rid of it and uh, everything will be fine. That's pretty enticing to people, but they're ask any posted post abortion woman if they regret what they've done and the majority will say they do ask any post adoptive mother or birth mother if they regret what they've done and the majority don't they're grateful that they were able to give life to this child and give them a family and the majority of people adopting are still two parent households and they're grateful that they were able to give that to their child because the one thing that we're entitled to in this life is to be born with two parents. Yeah. And yep. that's it. So it's rewarding, I think, for a lot of birth mothers to know that their children are being raised and alive and loved and hopefully healthy and happy. And with the way adoption works these days, the majority of adoptions are open so they can actually have a relationship with their family that have adopted with the child as well as the couple. And the way we look at the birth moms and, and birth fathers who have impacted our lives, they're our family. Yeah. We love them just like our kids. And I wish there was, a, we've got to come up with some type of a name or some kind of name that describes that relationship. I haven't found it yet. <laughs> I, I can tell you from, from my experience that, uh, it's it's possibly one of the most positive experiences I've ever had being able to um, tell my birth mom that, uh, look, first of all, I appreciate the incredible gift that you gave me, you know, by choosing to, to have me. And, and secondly, I need you to know I didn't squander that gift. I've tried to use it to, you know, to, to become as good a person as I can become. And I know for some people that may sound like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm trying to be a good kid, but, um, my birth mother came up to me um, after I had a chance to tell her that in purpose, she, in person rather, she came up to me um, a couple of times later when we met each other and uh, very clearly said, you know, I had been carrying guilt and shame for, for my whole life. And she said, based on that conversation we had, she goes, I have turned loose of it. It's, it's gone because I've had the chance to see what kind of a person you, you've turned out to be. And, and I, I've, I only share this because that was that was possibly one of the brightest moments of my life, and to think it happened in 2020, you know, <laughs> the worst year ever. <laughs> you know, I, I just I can't think of a of a better, more affirming message, you know, of uh, for for her and for me to know that that she has peace and that uh, I was able to to let her know how much I appreciated what she did for me. Right, and it's unfortunate that it took so long for her to get that peace. We want birth families now to have that right out the chute, just to know that all the things that you just told your mother, we want those families to know that as their child grows, we want them to be able to move on and do the things that they want to do and not be held back by guilt and shame. You know, we want them to just understand that they are loved and appreciated so much and there's not a greater gift. Tammy, how can people help? I know that uh, there are people who 
um, who agree very strongly. Look, they I, they're not going to support abortion. They're 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 going to be affirmative, you know, when it comes to uh, the idea of adoption. But what are some ways that those who are listening can actually help to to make this more of a reality or to to help people better um, seize the opportunity that's in front of them? I think there are a number of ways. One of them is to encourage people who are pregnant that are struggling that, you know, let them know that adoption is really a wonderful option and to share their stories and examples, all of the adoptive families and all the adoptees to make sure that people know their story. It's important. We learn from each other's stories and we understand as we grow the impact that we have on other people. And when For example, when a birth mom sees a family where their child has been adopted and sees that child thriving, I think that gives her a little bit of an idea that she could do that for her baby, if that makes any sense, rather than, well, I'm I'm just going to go to Planned Parenthood and take care of it. It just seems to me that, you know, the way we can help is just to be out there and talk about it. And that's one of the reasons that they have National Adoption Month. They have usually have an adoption celebration. I've been looking for the information on that, actually, to see if there's something here locally, and I haven't seen anything on the schedule anywhere. But generally, they have an adoption celebration in each municipality across the country where adoptive families get together and their children get to meet each other and everybody gets to meet each other and they're supportive and loving and they build friendships and relationships that go on past that adoption day or celebration day. And that's one of the neat things outreach does is bring families together. So I just think that talking about adoption really helps keep it top of mind for people. And I I don't know of any other way that we can help greater. Is there a website that you would send people to where they can, can get more information, become a little bit more closely involved? There are a few of them, actually. Adoption.com is a really robust website where birth families can go, adoptees can go, adopted families can go, or people who are just curious about adoption. It's really a thorough website. There's also adoptionservices.org, and that also lists um, agencies in the state of Utah and other resources available for people who are considering adoption. Tammy, i got to stop you here because we're up against the clock. Thank you, Tammy Brinkerhoff. So wonderful to catch up with you. Happy Adoption Month. Thank you so much. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to take a moment here to talk about one of my new sponsors, and it is GovernYourIncome.com. There is a link in my show notes. You can click on this. It'll take you to a landing page that explains more about uh, what this is. But I'm just going to cut to the chase here. We are talking about day trading on the foreign currency exchange. You want to talk about uh, markets. I know I I have a lot of nervousness when I look at uh, the world's economic markets. In fact, I I wonder how long can the stock markets continue to, to do what they've been doing? But regardless of what's happening in the markets, if the U.S. stock market were to collapse today, 
the foreign currency exchange market would still be in operation. There would still be trades taking place because those uh, those different currencies and the people who hold those different currencies still need to be able to exchange. So governyourincome.com will lead you to a company that will train you how to do day trades in the Forex markets. And the people who should be paying closest attention to this, it's not for everybody, are those who are looking for a truly independent income where you're not reliant on some, uh, some you know, big corporation or some federal contractor is going to insist you get the jab now or else. You can do it from anywhere that you have the internet. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's not for everybody, but for those people who see the value of it, this could be a really great opportunity. Click on the link. There's a demo that you can buy for 10 bucks that can let you run some of their, their proprietary software. You can see how it works. They're happy to answer your questions. I'm convinced for somebody this, this is going to be a really great fit and a really great tool for a truly independent income. So here's a thought. This is kind of a weird topic out of nowhere, but here's one to make your mind spin. Could you thrive or could you even survive without a car? Daisy Luther, who blogs as the organic prepper, um, has has uh, been so instrumental in bringing these things to my attention, and I'm so grateful. She shares a, an article here from, um, this is Colette. I don't know who Colette is, but Colette, pu- Colette is uh, a publisher on the Frugalite.com. And I wanted you to hear this example about uh, about living without a car. I mean, look. The thought of uh, what if both of your cars are broken and you can't, you have no transportation. That's the kind of stuff that gives me ulcers. If I can just be perfectly honest, the uh, thought of car trouble causes me more stress than even COVID. Ha! Go figure. Colette says, for most of my adult life, I had to learn how to thrive living without a car, both in the city and in the country. Now, she says, I'm 52. I've only owned a car for about 10 years. Right now, I live in the country. However, I've lived in many, many years in cities of varying sizes, and it's quite different to live without a car in the country compared to the big city. So she says, I'm going to talk about both, but while it may sound nearly impossible, if times are tight, she says, you should give it some serious consideration. You can save the money of a car payment if you have one, car insurance, which you have to have, parking, and of course, the ever-increasing cost of fuel and maintenance. So let's start start with living without a car in the city. She says, there's no question that living without a car in the city will save you money. You don't spend on the car, the insurance, and the expensive parking. Now, she says, when I lived in the city, it was enough to be paying city rent, never mind the car. As well, it can be easier to go without a car in a city. In most cities, even of modest size, say 20,000 people, there is some public transportation system. Smaller cities or towns generally have a bus system. In larger cities, you'll have a subway system, too. She says, in my city years, I had many creative solutions for getting around. First, I would walk wherever I could. So I tried to choose a location to live where I could walk to the grocery store. And she says, yes, I had one of those foldable grocery carts to make it easier. For longer trips, for example, to my classes, I would rollerblade. Now, she says, I wouldn't do that now on busy city streets, but when I was younger, sure. That was an option. When I could afford it, I bought a monthly subway or bus pass, and as time went on, this became a tax credit, so there was a benefit there. Sometimes, though, the pass was too expensive, and she says I would only use a bus or subway token 
when I absolutely needed it. Before, there was a policy that you could step on and off the system until your transfer expired, so that meant I could stop to run quick errands like grab a few groceries on my way home from work for no extra expense, and that really helped keep my transportation costs low. But what if I needed to get out of town? Well, she says, I always loved the train. And we had a pretty good city-to-city train system in our province in Canada. However, sometimes I was going where the train just didn't go. Then I would rent a car. And she says, I developed a relationship with one local rental agency. And as I rented fairly regularly, I was offered a business rate by one agency. At another, I got a deal where you rent a few times and get a free rental. One time, the car I reserved to go to a friend's wedding wasn't available. So they spotted her a brand new candy apple red Mustang. And she says, that was a fun drive. Finally, she had to, she had a way to buy and return home with large items or go for a grocery shop, you know, big grocery shop. The car sharing program was something that helped her there in her own neighborhood. She bought a membership to it. So car sharing, trains, the good old legs, your getaway sticks, that's, that's one way of doing it. Okay, let's talk about living without a car in the country, though. Doesn't that seem like it would be an entirely different animal? I know this is, this is the part that got me. She says, I live in a pretty rural area in the middle of nowhere. It's more difficult to drive and live without a car. There is no bus. There's no subway. There's nothing within walking distance. She says, the road I live on has no paved shoulder. It's traveled by huge dump trucks and transports. I would not ride a bicycle on it for the fear of my life. Although my work is nearby, about a seven-minute drive, it's 10 kilometers away. For all of these reasons, she says, I choose to have a car. However, I have a friend who's thriving without a car. How does she do it? Well, she says we have a wonderful local bartering network. My friend works seasonally and her work is just down the highway from where she lives. When she needs a car to drive, or she needs a drive to work rather, she's been able to get one from the bartering network. In addition, rural employers out here are more accustomed to having workers who don't have cars, so her employer would often give her a ride home. In fact, Colette says on the farm where I work, good employees are hard to come by. My employees would sometimes drop off our young workers or one of our young workers at home after work. In addition, in a small-town community, co-workers are often willing to drop someone off on their way home. She says that happens where I work on the farm and uh, where a guy without a car was hired and would only work shifts with his friend who drove. Another example is a young worker with no car who's dropped off at home regularly by a co-worker. The point is, people living without a car in rural areas don't only need to get to work, though. They also need to, to go other places. So sometimes, she says, when I was heading to the nearest town, which is about a 25-minute drive, I would take my friend with me. Then she would be able to run errands and go grocery shopping with me, and the bartering network would help drivers willing to do this with a gift card for gas. Smart. And Colette says, as I'd lived most of my adult life without a car, I knew what it was like. I enjoyed driving people different places, such as medical or legal appointments or taking someone to volunteer work they really enjoyed. You'll also see a lot of kindness towards neighbors in rural areas. Here's one example from our locale. She says there's a, an elderly aunt who's 82 years old who helped a woman without a car work in the next town about 30 minutes away. Now, this woman was an immigrant working hard to try to launch a business. She worked in the tourism industry on a tour boat. So 
Colette says my aunt would drive her pretty regularly to work, though sometimes the captain of the boat coming up from a nearby town up the highway would also drive her. So while living without a car in the country might seem like a daunting idea, she says, I hope I've shown how the close-knit nature of small-town community can really help to bridge this gap. And she asks, have you ever tried to live without a car? Do you currently own one? Do you live in the city or the country? Could you see yourself trying any of the thrifty tips offered here for living without a car? And she invites people to share comments in the comment section of the story. There is a link to this in the show notes. So I hope you'll take a look. Look, I hope that you're not in a position right now where that's the kind of thing you're having to face. Do I have a car? Don't I? You know, could I get by without one? I've seen people, and when I, when I lived in Cedar City, I remember seeing a guy who would be riding his bicycle in the snow out to his work at, a, at one of the trust building plants out west of town. I don't know the guy's story. You know, I don't know. Did he get a DUI? What, what was it? All I know is I saw a person who was not going to be stopped by the fact that it's snowing and I don't have a car from getting to his work. That's fortitude. That's, uh, there, there's something very admirable, I would dare say even heroic, about a person who's willing to do what they need to do to make it work. So don't underestimate yourself. You are resourceful. <laughs> you, you have more options than you may think. Roll with it. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Check out the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Show some love to my sponsors. Let them know that their message landed in your ears. This is The Brian Hyde Show.